We invite you to the book of 1 John in the New Testament. There are five sections of the New Testament written by John. The Gospel of John, the book of Revelation, and these three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We are in 1st John chapter 3, beginning with verse 9 in just a moment. 1st John chapter 3 and verse 9. Some overlap with a little review from a previous study. These video Bible classes are brought to you by the Laurel Heights Church of Christ, McAllen, Texas. Verse 9 really belongs to the section we studied in the previous video. Let me review some of that. We all sin, we stumble, and sometimes we do not apply ourselves as diligently as we should every day, and we may commit occasional sins. Then respond with penitence and confession. John teaches us about that in chapter 1 and chapter 2, 1 John chapter 1 and into the first verses in chapter 2. But if a Christian sins and just keeps on sinning without remorse and penitence, fellowship with God is disrupted. John's point in verse 9 is we cannot let that happen. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Now, I made the point in the previous video class, this doesn't mean it is impossible for a Christian to sin. It, it means our determination should be, our purpose and aim ought to be. We cannot let sin take us away from God. So, in the English Standard Version, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. In the contemporary English Version, God's children cannot keep on being sinful. In the New International Version, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. This verse goes to our purpose, our intent and attitude, where we tell ourselves, I cannot do that. I'm a child of God. That's the idea. I cannot do that. I'm a child of God. And remember, our action in life shows who we are attached to, either God or the devil. Now, moving into verse 10, John deals with the practice of righteousness in regard to one matter in particular. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Again, sometimes I consult the contemporary English version. It says you can tell God's children from the devil's children because those who belong to the devil refuse to do right or to love each other. 
Your action in daily life shows or manifests who you are attached to, God or the devil. We see John's emphasis generally in doing what is right, avoiding sin, practicing righteousness. We also need to see the specifics of that. And here is one, loving each other. This is not just courtesy. This is not just words. This is a heart that is devoted to the best interest of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Agape is the Greek word. And from that we get this idea of devotion of heart and seeking the best interest of your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is all a part of walking in the light. As John used that phrase in chapter 1, we're taking this as the theme of 1 John, walking in the light. This is part of practicing righteousness, and this love for each other will help keep us on the right path. So you come to verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Let me go back for a moment and pick up that theme. Back in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, walk in the light. If you want to know what that means, just keep reading in 1 John. It means to confess our sins. It means keep his commandments. Walk just as he walked. Love your brother. Do not love the world. Do the will of the Father. Practice righteousness. Purify yourself. Abide in him and love your brother. Chapter 3 of 1 John, verses 10 and 11. See, John tells us to walk in the light, and then he tells us specifically what that means. Now, to be certain we understand the imperative of love, John puts before his readers in verse 12 the opposite example. Here is the case of one who lived in fellowship with the devil and not with God. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Cain and Abel were brothers, sons of Adam and Eve. The account of this is found in Genesis chapter 4. It is a simple account of two men who approached God in worship. Abel pleased God, Cain didn't. Here's a good summary of that event in Hebrews 11 and verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he, being dead, still speaks. Cain reacted with anger. Under the influence of the wicked one, he murdered Abel. John takes us to the cause that was before the act. Jealousy. Jealousy came before the act of anger and murder. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. 
If you ever find yourself engaged in conversation, debate, or study with someone about why Cain killed Abel, here's the answer. Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. This was an utterly childish, destructive attitude. Like a child saying, you made an A, but I made an F, so I don't like you and I'm going to hurt you. We consider that to be utterly juvenile, immature, self-centered jealousy produced by unresolved anger and immaturity. This is the opposite. This is the opposite of the love children of God today are to practice. So listen again to verses 11 and 12 in 1 John 3. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Continuing at verse 13, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. English Standard Version, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Cain hated Abel. That's an early case in human history of the wicked hating the righteous, the world's opposition to God's people. If this was the case that early, if this opposition of the world to God's people goes all the way back to Cain and Abel, we ought not to marvel today if the world hates us. We are recipients of God's love. Thus, we ought to be examples of his love. But as we imitate the Father's love and we walk in the light as he is in the light, one result is the world hates us. The shallow spirit of Cain lives on in the society around us. John's language becomes even stronger in verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. The expression here, passing from death to life, is a clear reference to conversion. When you learn you are a sinner, you respond to the gospel, being baptized into Christ, the New Testament teaches you pass from death to life. When this translation occurs, there are various indications of conversion in your behavior. And one is you shun the kind of hate and anger that brought Cain to ruin. And what you embrace is love the brethren. So, notwithstanding any claims or boasting or proof of baptism, if you arise from baptism with hate, anger, jealousy, resentment, John's observation is you're still dead. You still abide in death. These immature, wrong attitudes are associated with the old life of sin, not the new life of righteousness. 
One of the evidences of conversion is a change in your basic attitude toward others. Conversion ought to be a cleansing of one's feelings and attitudes so that jealousies and envious attitudes of childhood are gone. We operate now on love, not selfish, immature emotions. If there was hate in your heart before conversion, and it remains there after you claim conversion, John doubts your claim. If you abandon immature attitudes, malice, and jealousy at baptism and stay away from those attitudes, but then later you lapse back into those sins and you stay there, you sever your ties with God. John said this earlier, chapter 2, verse 9, He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He is saying the same thing here, but with these words, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Now at verse 15, one of the sharpest statements in all the New Testament Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John's language here is so bold. The typical modern approach would be to try and find some interpretive spin to tone down these words, to offer some explanation that would say, well, John didn't really mean to say that. Oh, he, he meant to say it. And it's a very dangerous habit to get into to find something in the Bible that you consider to be too strong and try to turn the volume down on that or explain it away. By the time men get through with their interpretive spins, it means nothing. The better approach is, this is what John said. John defines a murderer John defines a murderer as one who hates his brother. Of course, we cannot take this verse and turn it into criminal law. We cannot use this verse to charge people with murder in the courts based on our judgment of what their attitude is. John is not giving civil law. He's giving God's evaluation of conduct to warn and govern God's children and keep them walking in the light. John defines murder not just in terms of the act, but the attitude that is behind the act. And while we're talking about this, I want you to know that Jesus taught the same thing. I'm back in Matthew 5, verses 21 to 26. Matthew 5, 21 and 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, 
If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let me ask you, did Cain agree with his adversary quickly? And the answer is no. He did not resolve internal anger. Resentment found a home in his heart, and it stayed there, and he murdered his brother. Jesus and John say he was guilty before the act, guilty before God, before the act. And no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Even if you never commit the act, legally defined as murder, whoever hates his brother is guilty and suffers a loss of eternal life. This shows how serious it is for malice within us to be unresolved. Even if you would never do the act of murder, according to the legal definition, homicide, the hatred that you harbor and keep in your heart excludes you from fellowship with God. I want you to listen carefully to what we have recently studied the last few minutes from 11 down through 15. 1 John 3, 11 through 15. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That's First John 3. 11 through 15. Now, John has written so plainly in favor of love and against hate. He has stated these matters with such a serious tone. What is this love? How do we know what this love is all about? How do we define it? Verse 16, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. I delivered a sermon about this verse many years ago, and I called it Love in Seven Words. He laid down his life for us. Now, let me say it may be helpful to dig into the varieties of Greek words translated into the English word love, words like agape and the others. It will be valuable to run down 
all the passages in the Bible that address the subject of love. But John defines love with seven important words. He, Jesus, laid down his life for us. As I read about Jesus in prophecy and promise, but especially when I come in contact with his life and death in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and as I learn about the significance of his sacrifice, I'm learning what love is. The love I am to participate in and display as a child of God. All right, look back at verse 16 and let's get in touch with something else here that we need. Love is defined by this great act of love on the cross. He laid down his life for us. The first part of verse 16 holds up the model. The second part of verse 16 calls upon us to imitate that model. And this is an intensely challenging thing. We also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. This may be one of the most powerful statements of practice in the New Testament that immediately causes you to be ashamed to conclude that you do not measure up, that you have some progress to be pursued. I must tell you, that is the effect of this verse on me. It tells me I have some work to do to arrive at this very high place in the activity of my love. Well, if we read this and we feel ashamed that we fail in this regard, let me just enhance our shame. What are the chances we would lay down our lives for somebody we've not even taken the time to become acquainted with? If you wouldn't take the time to pray for someone or call them or visit them or help them, do you think you would lay down your life for them? If we wouldn't do these lesser things, perhaps we wouldn't do the greater. But this is love as John defines it and commands it. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Any questions? Cain illustrates hatred. Christ illustrates love. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Verse 17 appears as a question, and the purpose is for us to think. If you have what your brother needs, but close your heart, that becomes evident that the love of God does not abide in you. Now, this doesn't mean you automatically give to anybody who wants anything you have. Other passages about faithful stewardship must govern our application of this verse. This is about legitimate need and legitimate resources to respond. When there is a legitimate need, you can respond to. You have the resources to meet real need, and you just shut your heart up. That's evidence of the absence of the love of God. 
My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. In the English Standard Version, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John has already made it plain. God will not accept claims without corresponding conduct. Another way to say that, remember that action shows attachment. If we say that we have fellowship with God, but we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 1 John 1, 6. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1, 8. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. 1 John 2, verse 4. John does not tolerate, therefore we conclude God does not tolerate claims without corresponding conduct. As applied to love, if we love just in word or tongue, in other words, if we just say we love, but we do not practice genuine love defined in Scripture, we are not pleasing to God. Conduct takes rank over claims. Behavior is the proof, not just boasting. I want you to listen to 1 John 3, 9 through 18. 1 John 3, 9 through 18. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That's 1 John 3, 9 through 18. Now, I've given us some takeaways throughout the exposition of the passage rather than list them here at the end. 
But I want to conclude with one big takeaway, and I'll put this on the slide. We know who we really are by what we do. If what we do is based on sincere inner devotion to God. We know who we really are by what we do if what we do is based on sincere devotion to God. I can know I am a child of God by what I do, like loving my brethren. But what I do must be based on sincere inner devotion to God. I hope this study has helped you. It has been challenging for me in 1 John chapter 3. Next time, verses 19 through 24. Thank you for viewing this video.